Lindsay and I went along with Lewis to a leadership conference a few months ago because we heard that this guy called Jim Cimbala was coming from a place called the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. And his story is pretty incredible. Of course, it's God's story. And they turned up at this church and there was a handful of people in a church that was building that was falling apart. And they labored and labored and then realized the only way we're gonna have breakthrough here is to get on our knees. And so they got on their knees and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. There's a, a wonderful book where you can read all about their story called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I really recommend you read it if you've not read it. But he, it wasn't his story that night um, about the church itself that really made an impact on me. It was this story about one guy who came into his church one evening. They had had three services that Sunday, so you'll see that God had been doing a thing. And on that third service, after that third service, Jim Cimbala said, I was absolutely exhausted. And so I sat on the edge of the stage and I looked out and I was just thinking about getting my slippers on and getting home and enjoying a nice night with my feet up when he caught this guy staring at him and he was a bit disheveled. He had this old hat on and you could tell straight away, matted hair, matted beard, that this guy was a homeless guy. And it was also obvious that he wanted to speak with him. And so he thinks, oh man, I'm tired. I know how these conversations often go. I'm not sure if I want to do this. But the guy comes over, <coughs> Jim Cimbala introduces himself. The guy says his name is David. And to his shame, this is how Cimbala put it, he said, I just wanted to give him some money, even though we had this policy not to do that, so that he would disappear. And David said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus you were talking about. And right there, he knew that that was a moment not just for David, but for him, because they were both in desperate need of Jesus. He had lost sight of what it was all about. And he said right there and then, he just cried out to God, help me to love. The stench that was coming from David was so overpowering that Jim Cimbala said, I didn't want to get any nearer and it really did make me want to repel. Urine, feces, sweat, the whole thing kind of combined into some concoction that just meant it was too hard to deal with. But he said as he cried out in that moment, something changed in him. David recognised it and gave him a hug. And he said, right there, he went from wanting to repel and run and get rid of this guy however he most possibly could and just get home and get his feet up and watch the telly. 
to really loving this guy. And he even said, he said, no word of a lie. I, in that moment, felt like he smelled beautiful. Like it was, had this incredible perfume. And I just embraced him. And he embraced me and we ministered to one another. A few months later, he came to his house for Thanksgiving and then Christmas after that. They're good friends decades on and David has become a pastor in another church. God is good and he is in the business of transforming our hearts. I'd like us to think now before we talk about foot washing and everything that Jesus does here in this passage, think about the people that you repel from. Think about the people that you don't want much to do with right now. You'd rather be anywhere else. Because I think Jesus wants to do something with your heart today that will help you to love them. This rabbi, Jesus, in this room, having a meal with his friends, who seems to do very little by convention, he unwrapped his mantle, his outer garment, as you would do when you were doing any kind of manual labor, and he gets on his knees. And he does something that would have been unthinkable. In the first century, washing feet for everyday Jews was vomit-inducing stuff. The dusty streets were filled with animal excrement, and so it didn't take long for your feet, exposed from the sandals that they wore, to get pretty gross. As a result, feet were regarded as unclean. And if you touched them, you would become unclean. This was the job that only Gentile slaves could do. Certainly not a Jew, a child of Abraham. How shameful. And here's a rabbi doing it. It was an act of servitude, of enslavement even. And from the text, I think we can see that there are three reasons why Jesus did it and why we should follow in his example in this embodied life of foot washing. Serve like Jesus. For love, for influence, and for holiness. And if you do, as verse 17 will say right at the end of the passage, you will be blessed. So first, we serve for love. It's no surprise that Jesus begins with love, is it? But we must not rush to, how do we love like Jesus? Because actually, only loved people can love people. We love because God has loved us. And Jesus' starting point for love, before he removes his outer garments and begins to wash the muck off those 24 feet like a Gentile slave, is his sonship. It's that home for Jesus is in his Father. That's why Jim Cimbala experienced what he experienced. It was not just an act of will. 
that took him from recoiling in disgust at the stench of David to embracing him as if he was breathing in perfume. What moves him and what must move us is a touch from God. It is only while we are secure in the embrace of the Father's love that we truly can discover as sons and daughters of God that our hearts can be transformed for radical love. You cannot do this on will alone. It is by the free gift of God's love for you. John put it this way in 1 John 4, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. And then a few verses later he says, we love because he first loved us. Without the security of God's never-ending, never-changing love, we will only be able to love based on the shaky ground of reciprocity. In other words, without knowing we are unconditionally loved, we will care far too much about how people think about us and love us before we can love them well. We love not because people love us in return, but because God has loved us. Jesus' feet washing helps us to see that we don't, what we don't mean here. And this is important. Because how we define love in this culture is wrong. Our therapeutic age might hear something like this and say, yes, amen. Don't do it if you don't feel it. But that's not what the Bible is saying. We do not stay inactive in our love and go through big periods of not bothering to love because we aren't moved to love. The transformation of the love of God is felt by believing and acting on the truth, not the other way around. We do not begin with our feelings about God and find truth. We begin with truth and find that God transforms our feelings. And that requires us to be disciplined in love. In the same way that Jesus is the Son of God, those of us who have accepted God's invitation to adoption will always be his son or daughter. Nothing will change that, but it is because we are securely held in the loving arms of God that we can daily live out sonship in faith. In other words, we can keep loving even when it doesn't come easy because we know we're loved. Because we know that that won't change. We can keep acting on love even though it's hard. We love because God has loved us and we love because love is our destination. And I say love is our destination, capital L, God is love. Jesus loved those he had been given to the very end, living to serve these daft, bumbling, fickle followers of his again and again. It kind of reminds me of me and my own faults. To the end literally means to the uttermost. Not just to the last moment, but to love to the limit. That's how Jesus loved. In every way, all the way to the cross. So, 
What sustained him? What keeps Jesus going? How does he keep loving? Well, their answer is at the end of verse 1, and it says, He knew that his destination was to dwell in the love of God forever. That's my paraphrase. Jesus knew he didn't truly belong to the world, but with God, and it is because he is not embedded in the systems of the world, in it but not of it, which he will later pray in John 17, is what allows him to love the world faithfully to the end. If you want to be someone who loves well in this world, you cannot assimilate to it. When we become like the world around us, it only enables, it only um, leaves us in a place where we actually, paradoxically, are unable to truly love it. We must love it detached, not attached. Attached to God and his vision for recreating the earth, for redeeming the earth, for loving the world. Not attached to the ways in which the world expects us to love it. When we are attached to God, our desire is to show his glory and be shaped by him. When we are attached to the world, our desire is to be glorified by it and in it. Jesus was able to love to the uttermost all the way to the cross because he was secure in the love of his Father and was confident he would be spending eternity with him. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult your marriage may be, and there are, let me just caveat that, there are moments where that may not be possible to continue. But in the most part, we can continue on in love because God has so loved us and because we know where we're going. We are the bride, Christ Church, and we will be with our husband forever and ever. We can keep going, we can keep loving. And we can love the difficult person at work. And we can love the difficult person at church. And we can love even ourselves. Aren't we so difficult sometimes? I find myself difficult sometimes. How do I love me? Well, because God loves me. And because I'm going to go and be with him forever and be secure in that love. Love as you receive the love of God and as you look forward to being perfectly loved in eternity, keep loving. So serve for love, but serve for influence. What do I mean by that? A friend of mine recently pointed out something very simple here in this passage when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet that I hadn't actually really considered before. (laughs) You're going to be like, you're so stupid. This is a leaders' meeting, and this is a training moment for these um, disciples that Jesus is preparing to lead the church in the early days. And as they are eating this meal and the lead up to Jesus' arrest, he pauses proceedings to give them an object lesson. By verse 15, Jesus says explicitly, I am setting you an example. 
Now, if you don't regard yourself as a leader, please don't switch off, okay? Not just yet. Let me point something out to you that Jesus and all through the New Testament uh, will point out again and again. Although some are certainly to lead among us in the church, we are all leaders. People who are designed to have kingdom influence in every part of our lives. All of us are to be disciple makers, priests, ministers, members of the body who are to influence one another and the world around us. There is no Christian who is not an ambassador of Christ in this world. You are to have influence. You are to lead. If you've not believed that, that's the enemy trying to persuade you that you will not be used in power. By virtue of being his and giving yourself to him and him filling you with the Holy Spirit, you can and will be used in power. If you believe in Jesus, you are commissioned to lead. But as exciting as all this is, we need to take stock of what that means especially this lesson Jesus chooses here. Leadership isn't sexy and it doesn't serve your own success or ego. Jesus shows us how uncomfortable it is by the washing of the disciples' feet. We shouldn't miss the relational strain in this passage either, the discomfort for Jesus as he stood firm when Peter and I would think the other disciples object. True to form, Peter shoots from the hip with an almost guttural outrage. No! Imagine all the other disciples would have been relieved, actually, that someone had spoken up. This objection would have been seen as right and good in the first century. The power of cultural pressure here is massive, especially when we're unaware of its influence. Peter's reaction is the impulse of the systems of the world that he lived in. No, that is not right. Jesus, you're my master. You're my rabbi. You're my Lord. You cannot serve me as if you were my Gentile slave. No, 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 this is awful. We can understand Peter's objection. And actually, at first, you might think Jesus is being a little bit inflexible. But we mustn't confuse standing firm in gospel truth with rigidity. We mustn't think that somehow we are just to serve the, the feelings and needs, or felt needs of the people who are objecting. To influence the world around us, we must learn to embody the strength of God's truth and love that flows from his throne. Again, in this therapeutic age, we will be criticized for doing what Jesus does here and persevere with the lesson instead of giving over to the objection. Perhaps if you were in attendance at the time, you would begin to squirm in your seat. You make eyes at someone else across the room as Jesus pushes forward with his agenda, despite how uncomfortable the group clearly is. We mustn't think leadership is simply a gateway for people's self-expression and self-autonomy. People need to be shown what it looks like to detach from the world and be attached to the kingdom of God. That is not to say that leaders won't get it wrong and that we won't get it wrong. Of course we will. 
we are not like Jesus in that way. And that must be part of our humility. People need to be shown what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom and say no to the world. Genuine kingdom influence comes when we learn to cut against the grain of popular culture and follow through with what God has given us by biblical convictions. Jesus says, verse 7, you realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. You, it, it won't be until Jesus is resurrected from the dead that the disciples will be able to see the way of the cross here, to understand that to live they must die. And there will be parts to that and to other teachings of Jesus that we may not understand until he returns and makes all things new. The implication for us here then is that we can trust Jesus even if we don't understand. And there are things that we must do and say that will be misunderstood by our neighbours, our friends, our family, our colleagues that may be confusing for them and actually fairly major objections. And it may mean, and Jesus says that we should expect this, that you will even be hated for standing firm on those things. Until he returns, we must learn to speak the truth in love. And that's what Jesus does here to Peter and the disciples. Now the context of that little phrase, speak the truth in love, comes from one of the Apostle Paul's letters in Ephesians 4. And he's sitting in a prison cell and he is concerned that the world around the Ephesian congregations is having too much influence over their thinking. He says they are in danger of being tossed around like a wave on the sea, blown around by every wind of teaching, joined to the futility of the world's thinking. For Christ-like maturity, he says, speak the truth in love, and put off the old self. To have the kind of influence that will bring genuine change to the environments that we operate in, we must be willing to die to ourselves and to reject the world's expectations and hold true to the teachings of our King. You know, the root of the word leadership means go forth and die. True leaders find the courage they need to make an impact in the world, not because they look or sound impressive, but like Jesus, who had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, or Paul, whose teaching sent people into a deep sleep, been there, but because they are willing to die to themselves and trust Jesus. I love the way that John Wesley put it. Give me ten men that hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God and we will change the world. Serve for love, serve for influence, and serve for holiness. Jesus says to Peter in verse 8 that without this washing, he can have no part of him. Now, this phrase, have no part of me, is used in Jewish tradition, usually concerning your inheritance or legacy. For a rabbi, it might even mean to share your teaching, to walk in the ways of the rabbi and receive the, the kind of handing on of the teaching that they've developed and built. I don't know if it was Peter's ambition 
or his love for Jesus. Probably mixed motives. But his response in verse 9 says, I'm all in. I want it all, Lord. I want all of me to be yours. I may not understand, but I want all of you. And I want to belong to you in your ways. Now, it's unclear about just how much is understood by the disciples, but like they would certainly have realized later, we can see now that this cleansing of feet is symbolic of a greater cleansing. A greater cleansing we all desperately need. Jesus looks forward to the cross and he says their faith, not the comprehension of what will take place, that's not the same thing. He says, and he says, you're already clean. So he's looking forward to the cross. He sees their faith. You're already clean. The only way that Peter's objection is wrong and that Jesus isn't defiling himself by washing their feet is because Jesus, the Holy One, will make the shocking nature of foot washing look like nothing when he is raised naked on a Roman cross and crucified on their behalf. Nothing is more shocking than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords becoming sin for us, exchanging our defilement for his holiness and then declaring us holy. Once he had washed all 24 stinking feet, he puts his outer robe back on and he asks again, do you understand what I have done? And then he does something interesting. He makes three sharp contrasts between his position and theirs. Teacher and pupils, master and servants, sender and messengers. He's not trying to lord it over them. He's saying, do you get it? Look what I've just done. No matter your position, you're never greater than your master. And your master is going to lay his life down for you. You can serve others through your whole life because I have served you with my life, even to the point of death. Jesus' call to lay our lives down does not bellow from a distant throne, but comes to us by opening not his mouth on that rugged cross. Innocent and pure, Jesus accepted and absorbed your guilt, shame and punishment on your behalf. His call is to lay down your life And his call is a call to follow him, our greater leader, who went forth and died, so that we can take up our new life, which is his life, his inheritance, his teaching, his ways, his sonship. We become sons and daughters of God, loved forevermore, because we have died with Christ and we have been raised with him into a new life in the love of our Father. 
And now he's poured out the Spirit on us. And in doing so, as Paul says in Romans and in Galatians, we can cry out, Abba, Father. We are now free to enjoy the wonderful blessings of his kingdom. This glorious inheritance. He was the firstborn son who held all the keys and he shared them with us. If you put your life in the hands of Jesus, if the answer is yes, you are holy and you are his. Perhaps the lesson we might miss here is that without Jesus, we are all like those stinking feet, defiled. But because of Jesus and his willingness to lay himself down, we now can be reborn into a new life in his resurrection. The King of Kings died for you so that you could be holy and enter into his presence and have this beautiful relationship back where it all started, the love of the Father for the Son. You too have that relationship. Loved forever by God the Father, you are his. And because you have been declared holy, you can continue in holiness by washing one another's feet. Not literally necessary, praise the Lord, but in our love for one another and for this world we live in, we are to embody what it means to wash feet. And as we do, we will increase in holiness and receive the blessing of a holy life. What do I mean by that? Because I've just said we're holy. Well, you get to step into what is already yours. You get to take one step after the other in obedience and enjoy who you already are. But that does take discipline. And we must not confuse legalism with discipline. Keep stepping into his love, not trying to prove yourself for him. Jesus has already done that. But by stepping into the life that is yours to enjoy it and to be a blessing to others around you. You see that? As you step into who you have already been made to be in Christ, you will receive more of the blessing that comes with living in God's ways. Keep denying that old life and the ways of the world. And be who Jesus has made you to be. Serve for love, serve for influence, and serve for holiness. Now, foot washing and communion go hand in hand. Because there we, de we declare at this table our togetherness in his love. That love that led him to death where we were crucified with him and raised to new life with him. All equal in Christ. Dead to sin. Alive to Christ.